Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. If you would please rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to, to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you, for you have answered me, and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us life. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as we come to this wonderful psalm, which speaks so much of the greatness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which we ought to respond in worship to him. Father, how we do plead with you that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that we would be given eyes to see the beauty of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his magnificence, and that in so doing, we would fall down our faces in worship, and that our lives would be changed. Lord, we plead with you for this. We, we have known something of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we desperately want to know more. Would you... Please, 
Give us eyes to see now and ears to hear. For we ask all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, at the end of John's Gospel, John, having very self-consciously wrote in a selective Gospel, where he chose to include certain things and not include other things, he wrote this, And there also are many th other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There are, are so many things that the scriptures say about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can think about this even by just enumerating the names which are given to him, the wonderful names which all describe different things about him. Think of how he's called the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, the Good Shepherd, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Living One, the Shepherd and Bishop of Souls, the Branch, Jehovah our Righteousness, Emmanuel, we could go on and on in our descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we hear all of these names, all of them speak to something different, that he is Jehovah, our righteousness. He's the one who grants us his own righteousness as Jehovah himself, that he's Emmanuel, God with us, that he's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that he's the Lamb of God who gave himself for our salvation as our sacrifice. All the things which are written in the scriptures about the Lord Jesus Christ contribute to our knowledge of him. And as we think about this multifaceted Savior who has done so much and is worthy of all these names and more, we realize that we must, in our response to him, worship it is the only thing that we can do. And it is for us as Christians to seek out more knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ that we might grow in our love for him. We might see that even as uh, this one who is the Son of God came, became a man for our sakes, was crucified, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, we see that even as we contemplate that those great acts of redemption, that they can be viewed from so many different ways, and in so many ways it fulfills all the things which are written in the scriptures about our coming salvation. And there is this great pattern that we find in the Psalms very often, where there is a description of redemption, or of the Messiah, and then there is followed a description of the worship that comes to God because of the work of the Messiah. And this is exactly the pattern that we see here in this particular psalm. As the psalm uh, speaks of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see in a number of different ways, a number of different ways where it connects to other passages in the Old Testament, other ways where it's developed in the New Testament. Uh, many different aspects of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ are portrayed here in this psalm. And after describing this great deliverance that God works for the Messiah, then there is this great transition where all of the people of God are then called to praise him. This psalm, Psalm 118, is the great climax of this first section of the Psalter. All of the psalms that we've been looking at uh, during this, this brief series that we began with Psalm 107, all of them are building towards this great psalm where we have the, the climax of not only this section, it's the climax of uh, the section from Psalm 107 to 118 is the climax of the Egyptian Hillel, 113 to 118. Uh, in, in every way, this psalm is meant to be climactic. And we see it in a number of ways where the psalmist uh, very clearly, the, the one who uh, put together the psalm in its final form, even the way it's, it's, it's been placed in the psalter clearly shows its, its emphatic nature. In a lot of ways, it's connected with Psalm 110, which itself is a very climactic psalm. Uh, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies it's, uh, it's footstool. Then after Psalm 110, there are three hallelujah psalms. 
song about the X's and three Hallelujah songs. So there's this kind of symmetry. And then there's this song, which clearly shows that Psalm 110 and 118 are meant to be uh, read together. There's a lot of tie-ins with Psalm 107. In all these ways, this psalm is meant to be the climax. Everything we, we've spoken about in Psalm 107, about the return from exile, the great final salvation uh, that was portrayed there, about the, the great Davidic king who would come in Psalm 110. Uh, this is the climax of everything that was spoken of to this point. This is the great climax. What we see from this particular uh, psalm is very simple. You must worship God. In light of all that, that has been said, in light of all that's said in this psalm, it, because of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, who is portrayed here in this psalm as the new David, the new Moses, and the true temple, as the one who is uh, humiliated and then exalted, the new David, the new Moses, the true temple, you must worship Christ for being all those things. You must worship him for being all those things. So we'll look at this passage of the three headings. First, we'll consider in verses uh, 5 to 18 in particular, Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Then, uh, then in a number of places, we'll, we'll go with some places with, with, Psalm, uh, with verses 5 to 18, and then also um, a couple other places will show that uh, Christ was, is the new David, the new Moses, and the true temple. In that way, he's our prophet, priest, and king. And then, uh, finally, we'll look at the need to worship Christ for his work looking at the first four verses and then verses 19 through 21. So with that, let's look uh, once again. Really the first four verses uh, deal with this great call to worship. And um, in this way, the psalm is sort of bookended by worship. There's the first four verses which call the people of God to worship. Then there is a recounting of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, his humiliation and exaltation, which is then followed up by worship. So we're going to look at the middle section first because this is the reason why we worship. The reason why we worship is because of what this singular person is going to do. The way in which he was surrounded by all the nations, which they attempted to cut him off, but he defeated them in his great might. Now, with, throughout this song, there is this back and forth play between a singular individual person and a number of other people. Um, we see particularly in this section where I'm, I'm saying it's about the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is one particular person in view. And when this one particular person, not the whole nation, but one particular person was surrounded by all the nations and was at the point of uh, seemingly being overwhelmed, who in his distress put all of his faith and confidence in the Lord God and was in that situation then delivered, that becomes then the foundation for all the people of God that worshiping. And so there is this, this transition. There is one singular individual who receives a great deliverance. And then after that deliverance, this one individual then worships God and it leads to all of the people of God then worshiping him. Uh, it's a very similar movement to Psalm 22. If you remember, if you're familiar with that Psalm, you remember it, how it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's this long lament about uh, the, the way in which uh, David, who is speaking prophetically also of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way in which uh, the, the Lord Jesus Christ would be ultimately betrayed, is speaking of one particular person who was betrayed and who was, uh, who was given over to death. And then when God delivers him, then there is this uh, transition within the psalm, Psalm 22. And this one individual then brings all the people of God, even more than that, the way we know more than, than about David, 
uh, just about David is because all of the ends of the earth come and they worship because of this great deliverance of this one person. And here we have something that's very similar that's going on uh, in, in Psalm 118. One particular individual is going to be cut off. God is going to rescue him. And when he is rescued then, all of the earth is to come and to worship him for this great deliverance. Now there is a summary given. Uh, there is a summary given in verse 5 of what is, what is happening with this particular individual. It says, it says, I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. Now, this, the word distress in verse 5 is actually highly emphatic. Um, it can be translated as the distress, as in like one particular distress, which uh, is a climactic distress, uh, very similarly to the way in which uh, in Psalm 107 there was a distress of the exile, and the people of God were brought back, so too, uh, we're meant to see here a, a parallel distress that, that this one individual is going to go through, a climactic distress uh, that he goes through. And then it works out then the way in which uh, verses 6 to 9, how uh, this particular individual, the Lord Jesus Christ, trusts in God even in the midst of his distress. Then his uh, humiliation and exaltation is recounted in verses 10 to 13. And then uh, that is followed by then the response given in verses 14 to 18. Now notice here, uh, in verses 6 to 9, we see that in the, in the midst of distress, that this individual, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, uh, trusts in God in the face of great problems and uh, distress. And we see he's completely steadfast here. He says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Even as we'll see later in verses 10 to 13, he is completely surrounded by enemies. It appears that the that nations can do quite a lot to him. But he maintains his faith in God. He trusts him and says that it is better to, to trust in God than to trust in anyone else. It's very similar to, if you remember how Psalm 116 describes uh, an individual who is uh, going to be given over to death, and yet he calls on God. He says, he says that when he's summarizing his faith in God, he says, uh, I said I'm trusting God and all men are liars. In comparison with God, I will put my trust, uh, I will put my trust fully in God, and I will declare if anyone else tries to tell me anything that's contrary to this, I will declare all men to be liars. This is the faith that the Lord Jesus Christ had as he was going to the cross, as all of the, the weight of the wrath of God was placed upon his shoulders. He trusted in God completely. And in that way, he gave us a great example that when we are in the same kind of distress, we are also to trust in God. We're to have the same attitude. What can man do to me? I'm going to trust in God, and I am going to say all men are liars. Now, one, one author pointed out, as I was preparing for this sermon, uh, that uh, there is actually quite a lot of things that could have been done uh, to the individual here. And you, and you think of how the Jews at this time would have received this. Think of all the things that happened to them, the Old Testament saints. One author wrote this, he says, in the Exodus and New Exodus context in which this psalm is situated, these claims are staggering that you can, that you can claim, what can man do to me? For the answer, any post-exilic Jews or anyone who's living after the Babylonian captivity uh, could give to the question, what can a person do to me, is that a person can take their life, family, community, home, temple, dignity, and freedom. All of the Old Testament saints, they lost all of those things. They were living in a foreign land, and they had everything removed from them. And yet, even in that context, the, the, the psalmist here, 
the, the speaking of the Messiah says, what can men do to me? I will put my confidence in God and I will say, man can really do nothing against me if God is in fact for me. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said. He said, what is a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? Do not fear the person who can only kill the body and then can do nothing else. But fear the one who, after killing the body, can throw both soul and body into hell. This, this, is, this is the answer. What can man do to you? Ultimately, man can do nothing to you. If God is for you, then even though man kills you, even then, your body will be raised in the last day. And this is was the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross. I will put my hope and my confidence in God. And I will trust in him no matter what. And brothers and sisters, no matter what kind of difficulty we face, we, we've been speaking a lot about how to live a godly life in the midst of sufferings and morning services as we've been going through First Peter. But here we have, even as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and his example, uh, another great uh, another great aspect of this, that we're to have this eternal perspective that no matter what it is that we go through in this life, ultimately, nobody can do anything to us. They can't do anything to us that is of any moment of significance. God himself will raise us up on the last day and he will fully vindicate all of his people. And so brothers and sisters, stand firm no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what it is that the world is saying to you, saying that it will be better for you to give in Give up your Christian faith and come uh, to the other side. It is ultimately, ultimately, all of their threats are empty and they can do nothing. And so we, the first thing that's said about the Lord Jesus Christ is his faith and confidence in God. And then notice in verses 10 to 13 that we have the actual recounting of this humiliation and exaltation. Here we have a description of uh, all of the nations surrounding the, uh, uh, Christ in particular, very similar to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? The rulers of the earth take counsel together and they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. This is exactly what's being described here. There, there, there would come a day when all of the nations would gather against Christ. And truly, uh, this was exactly what happened. Remember uh, how in Psalm, uh, in Acts chapter 4, when uh, Peter and John were arrested by the Sanhedrin after the Lord Jesus Christ started them exalted to the right hand of the Father. And they pray a prayer and they say, truly, Truly, all the nations did gather against your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do to him according to all that you had, had uh, foreordained to happen to him for the sake of the redemption of your people. He said, truly, this happened. Truly, all the nations really did come against the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see very clearly from this psalm, we can, we can point out any number of other psalms. We've looked at Psalm 22, another uh, uh, prophecy about the, the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at Psalm 109 earlier, a number of weeks ago. We see very clearly all throughout the Psalter, all throughout the scriptures, that it was necessary, it was necessary that the Lord Jesus Christ suffer before he entered into his glory. It's something that's taught from the beginning to end. It was necessary that the Lord Jesus Christ would have to suffer. Now notice here, even as he's being uh, surrounded by all the nations, that the description of this uh, contest is in the description of a battlefield. That it's, it's a contest where the Lord Jesus Christ is being portrayed as a great king who, uh, though he's surrounded by all the nations, yet will cut all of them off in the name of the Lord. Very similar thing that, that David said to Goliath. I come to you, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he cut off Goliath. 
And so the same thing is said here of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations are going to surround the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he, as the great king, is going to defeat them. And this is exactly the way the New Testament describes the, the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It wasn't just that he made an atonement for sins, which he, of course, did do. This is why, again, I said that there's any number of ways that we can look at the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's multifaceted, and uh, every way that we can look at it shows his, his brilliance and his glory. But another way that the New Testament describes the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is that it was a defeat of all of his enemies. Remember Colossians chapter 2, that he defeated all of uh, the enemies of God. He, uh, he was uh, exalted above all principalities and rulers and uh, made a mockery of them by triumphing over them in the cross. He defeated all of his enemies uh, at the cross. And then finally in verses 14 to 18, there is, uh, this, the psalmist here is looking back on this great deliverance that God has, in fact, uh, delivered uh, this particular person, the Lord Jesus Christ, from all of his distress and trouble. And in verse 17 in particular, it is pledged to him that he shall not die but live. I shall not die and live and declare the works of God. Ultimately, there was no one who could hold down the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was given life. Now, this is one of a number of psalms that we've seen even just uh, in the last few weeks that have a particular emphasis on the resurrection of the dead. We saw resurrection being a very important theme at the end of Psalm 115. It's an important theme in Psalm 116. And then finally here in Psalm 118, it is uh, a great emphasis as well. All throughout this, this section of the Psalter, we find that if you put your trust in God, you will live. You will put your trust in God. If you put your trust in God, you will live. Even though you die, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints, and you will see God in the flesh, in the land of the living. And so this is this is the recounting then of the the of the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who portrayed ultimately as a great king. And we see there from that, at least at least from the, these uh, this particularly verses ten to thirteen, that the Lord Jesus Christ here is clearly being portrayed as a new day. He is. Uh, the, the coming king, the great son of David, the great king who will cut off all of the enemies of God. Uh, this is a, a very similar description to the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 110. You remember in Psalm 110, he's described as a great king who will cut off uh, all of the enemies of God because the Lord himself is at his right hand. But as I mentioned, there are a number of things that are said about the Lord Jesus Christ here, number, a number of ways in which this psalm ties into other portions of Scripture and where there are, are allusions to other things that show us uh, that this, this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, is uh, multifaceted. We saw he's a king, he cuts off all of his enemies as a new David. But also another thing that's very, very clear from the psalm is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the new Moses. He is, he is the prophet like Moses who is prophesied. Uh, particularly in, in Psalm 118, in this psalm in verse 14. Where it says, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is an exact quote from Exodus 15. The great song at the sea, that was, that was a song that was sung uh, right after the, the parting of the Red Sea and the great deliverance from Egypt. This was the thing that was, was sung. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he, has be, and he has become my salvation. It's also quoted again in Isaiah chapter 12 which is uh, a passage which also deals with uh, the new exodus where uh, there is a 
the Lord Jesus Christ is described in Isaiah chapter 11. And then there is a song that re recounts the Exodus, so to speak, speaking, though, particularly of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation, that he would work. This salvation of this individual is seen to be a new Exodus. When he himself is delivered, he sings the song of the Exodus. I have been delivered, just like God delivered his people at the Red Sea. And we even see it as well with the language of the right hand, another great theme of the Exodus, that God delivered his people with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, that he worked mighty deeds with his right hand and he cut off all of his enemies. And so too, just as he did in the Exodus, so too he will do for this particular person. This particular person is the new Moses who leads the new Exodus. This is the, the true uh, Moses who is the, the prophet like Moses promised in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so he is the king, he is the prophet, but notice as well, later on in the song, he is also the true temple. He is, in that way, the true priest. We see this as, because he's described as the stone which the builders rejected, and he has become, in fact, the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, uh, this was recognized to be the Messiah in by every age of the church, everyone recognizes the Messiah. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself applies this verse to himself. Even the Jews, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and even after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, recognize that the stone here that's being spoken of was, in fact, the Messiah. This is a description of the Messiah. It's basically the psalmist who's speaking in the first person, uh, says, you know, I was cut off, and then he gives this metaphorical uh, explanation. The stone of the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. As I was about to be cut off and was in fact rejected by all and all the nations surrounded me, so too uh, I am like a stone in that way. And the stone which the builders rejected has in fact become the cornerstone. Now, why this figure? Why is it that the psalmist uses this idea of a stone to describe uh, himself? Well, and what is the stone? The stone is... Uh, the cornerstone for the building of the house of God. It's the cornerstone for the temple. And here he's saying that, that he is the one who was cut off, is in fact now in his person the great foundation for a building of the temple of God. Not the temple built by Solomon, but the temple that would be built by the Messiah himself. It's uh, building on the language of the Davidic covenant, where uh, God had promised that one who would come from uh, the loins of David, a great son of David, would in fact build the house of God. Now here we have someone who is who is a new David, who will cut off all of, the, of God's enemies, just like David did. He will cut off all the enemies as a great king, and he himself then, rather than building a physical temple, a, a physical house of God, he himself is the stone upon which the entire structure is built. He is the house of God. And there's even, there's even some hints in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic Covenant, that this may even be the case. Because in that, in that uh, passage, if you remember, uh, David says, I want to build a house for you, a physical house for his name. And God says, no, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. What he means by house there is not a physical house, but a household. He'll build, build your dynasty. And then he says, then God says, but one who comes from you, a son of David, will build a house for my name. And at that point, there's a question. Does that, that third house, is the house which the Messiah will build, is it a physical house? Or is it a house made of people? 
Is it a household? And there's some question. There's, it can go either way. And the prophets pick up on this, and this is why they often describe the Messiah as a stone. Think of Isaiah 28, where it's the same way. Uh, the stone which is set in Zion has become the cornerstone. The, the, the Messiah himself is both the one who builds the house, the physical house, so to speak, but also is the beginning, the foundation of the household of God, in which God himself will dwell. And this is, this, this description of the Messiah building the house of God, this is everything that the Old Testament is really building to. And you think of even in the Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, another uh, link to, to that, there is a house that God himself would build and all of the people of God would dwell with God in that house. And here, this great figure, who is the new David, the new Moses, he himself is the foundation stone for that house. So that if you want to have fellowship with God at all, you can only do it by being a part of this particular house. And this is why even in the New Testament, the passage we're going to get to uh, just in a couple of weeks, it says that in First Peter chapter 2, it says that we ourselves are being built as living stones into a dwelling place for God where we can offer spiritual sacrifices to him. All of this is just building on the language that is ultimately rooted in the Davidic covenant and developed here. The Lord Jesus Christ in this passage is the one who is humiliated, who is exalted. He's the true king as the new David who cuts off all the enemies of God. He's the true prophet, the new Moses, who leads the people of God and who delivers them just like at the Exodus. And he is the true house of God, the temple of God, in whom we have fellowship with God. This is the great and glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that is given in this passage. Now, I know I'm very conscious that I've given quite a lot of information about this psalm. I, I felt uh, it was a bit difficult to even think through how I could you know, perhaps break this up into two sermons, and I decided not to do that. So I do apologize if it's a bit overwhelming to, to hear so many different things. It's hard to keep in your mind. But, but think of all the things which are said of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the point of all this? What's the point of knowing all of these things about the Lord Jesus Christ? The point is this. If this is your Savior, you must worship. You must worship him. If, if you have your eyes even somewhat open to the glory of this Savior, then the only possible response is worship. And if he himself is the foundation for this house of God, then when you enter the house of God through him, clearly he is the one who is to be worshipped. He is the one who receives all glory and honor and praise. And this is the way the psalm goes. This is the, the whole point of the psalm is to get Christians to worship, to get people who are God-fearers to worship. Notice how the psalm begins. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. The whole point of the psalm is to say, this is a great Savior. You must worship him. You must worship him. And so here we have, uh, even in this, this first call in verses 1 to 4, uh, same language that we, we saw back in Psalm 115, the exact same groups are given. Uh, the point is not just Jews, but even the Gentiles, those who fear the Lord, uh, as we saw in Psalm 115, extend beyond uh, even just uh, the Jews. Uh, and this is similar to what we saw with Psalm 117. All the nations are to come and they're to worship God. In light of the greatness of this Savior, the entire world must now worship God. Must now worship God for this great salvation. And notice as well, 
that even the worship which we give to God is itself based on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there are so many connections between what we do in worship and what the Lord Jesus Christ himself did. I've already mentioned that he himself is the cornerstone for the house of God. We then, as the house of God, worship God uh, as, as that same house. So Christ himself uh, is, is the temple, and so we gather together as the people of God, and we worship him. And notice in verses 21 to 24, this is exactly what happens. There is a, a recounting of all the ways in which God has saved the Lord Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead. And uh, the response is, I will praise you, for you answered me. You have answered me. You have become my salvation. There's the, the statement about the stone, and then there is the, the, this great declaration of, of the things which God has done, and that being the foundation for the worship of God's people. This was the, the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's not just talking about any day. It's not just like every day is the, the day that the Lord has made. I mean, it's true in some sense the Lord does make every day, and we ought to rejoice and be glad in it. But this psalm is talking about the great day when the Lord Jesus Christ was rescued and delivered, when he was raised from the dead, when all of these things came true, when now the righteous, as God's people, can enter into the house through the gates of righteousness, and have great fellowship with God, and worship, and adore Him. And even then, even as we, uh, even as we celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice that there's even prayers that are made. And this is on the basis of the great work that has been done. Save now, I pray, verse 25 and 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Your prayers are being offered up in the context of worship. And this is exactly what we do. We, we, we have various distresses that we have in our lives. We pray that God would deliver us. And we pray that he would, that he would do it because of the great deliverance that he has worked for his son. We, our, our prayers are rooted in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We ask for deliverance and we bless the Messiah who comes in his name. And then uh, notice as well, as we look at the very end of the psalm, uh, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. This is the, the great bookends uh, of the psalm, a great call to worship and summary for all that God has done in Christ. He is good, his mercy endures forever. He has shown that in all that he has done for this particular individual who is the new David, the new Moses, the true temple, the one who was humiliated, and then who was finally exalted. Everything that we do in worship then must be Christ-centered. We sing Christ, we pray through Christ, Christ is preached, and we even see Christ in the supper. Baptism shows forth union with Christ. In every way, Christ is exalted because all of our worship is built upon the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything we do in worship shows forth that great work. It's a, it's a great picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even as that goes out to the world, we, we sing of it, we read it, we hear it, we, we hear it preached. Everything is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so very simply, in terms of the summary of uh, this, if we were to give a summary for the, the whole section of this, of this Psalter, 
the, the first part of Book 5 of the Psalter, we'd have to say that the, a great summary would be God must be worshipped for the redemption that comes in the Messiah. It's said in a number of different ways, in a number of different angles, but that's, this is really the sum of it. God must be worshipped. If you can know these facts about the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can know these things about him and his greatness, and not have your heart be moved to worship. Brothers and sisters, it shows a tremendous weakness in the Christian life. If, if you can know these things, and it's one thing if you don't even know them, you, you can't worship from the government, but if you know them, if you know of them, and they do not move you to heartfelt and deep worship, then brothers and sisters, it shows a great weakness. The Lord Jesus Christ here, you can almost compare it to a diamond that's held up in the light. And this psalm, and even the, this whole section of the Psalter, is, is like someone's holding a, a, a diamond up to the light and just turning ever so slightly so that all of the beams radiate out in all of its brilliance. This is really what is happening here with the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you can't appreciate the, the beauty of that diamond as it is slowly rotating in the light, then, brothers and sisters, really the only conclusion you can come to is that you don't have spiritual eyes to see at all. If you, if you can't see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's being put forth in all of his brilliance, then there is a great problem. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? Do you see his beauty? And has your heart been led to worship? May God grant us eyes to see that we might worship him all the more and that our lives might be worthy of his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Lord, how thankful we are that even as the Lord Jesus Christ is surrounded by all nations, Lord, so your people in very many ways are throughout all time. And Lord, we ourselves are weak, even as Moses said in Deuteronomy to the people of God at that age, that God did not choose us because of our great strength. He did not choose us because of our great righteousness. We are wicked and stiff-necked people, and we are the least among all the peoples in the world. We have nothing to commend ourselves to you, O Lord, even as all the nations surround your church and fight against your church. And yet, Lord, you sent your Son to deliver us and it's such a wonderful and spectacular deliverance. Lord, what else can we do but worship? Father, would you enable us by your spirit to give to you the glory and praise that is due to your name? And that we would ask very simply that our lives would simply make sense in light of all the things that you have done for us. Let, let it not be said of us, how could you have such a cold heart if your Savior has done so much? You say you're... you're your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done so much. Why hasn't it changed your life? Lord, may it never be said of us. May it never be said of us. But Lord, may others see our good works and praise you, the Father who is in heaven. For we ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.